0: Nice to uh, see people outside of their box. Uh, And I just want to say thank you to Anthony for bringing this to New York City and pulling this off. I think he deserves an amazing round of applause. This is incredible. Um, So I'm here with Mark Spitznagel, who's an incredible investor. Um, My first question, Mark, is on weeks like we've just had where the market sort of goes down every day i know it's up a little bit today do you get more calls on weeks like last week or more calls when the market's hitting its all-time highs
1: good question um you know universal clients tend to be very strategic as opposed to tactical so i i would say that in general it doesn't really matter, um, and I would I would characterize you know this week as basically being noise. So, um, but but it's a good question because it really is when the market is is going up that uh, risk mitigation in the right way, cost-effective risk mitigation is so important because I argue that cost-effective risk mitigation, when done well, um, doesn't just take you out of risk, but it actually allows you to take on more risk, or maybe it's better to say, take more exposure. This is really important. So the more the market rallies, the more that's really something that's important. But of course, we also know that the more the market rallies, the more it can take all that back. It tends to be how boom-bust cycles work. Um, So, but in general, I would say that it's kind of nice.
0: It's a toss-up. It's a toss-up. And and how do people get in touch with you? (laughs) Um, and, and, and who are your clients? Who are the who are your investors?
1: We tend to be your typical uh, institutions.
0: So uh, looking for risk mitigation.
1: Uh, well, well, exactly. I mean, risk uh, institutions. Think think of a pension fund. The, the the problem that they face is the what I call the, the great dilemma of risk, which is you know, if you don't take enough risk, of course, it costs you wealth over time. If you take too much risk, it costs you wealth over time. So we're forced to kind of navigate and fine tune and find this what, we, what is termed the sort of holy grail somewhere in the middle. Um, the holy grail doesn't exist. Modern the theory, modern finance can't help with that problem. Um, of course, we know what, what modern finance tells us is that you take less risk, uh, 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 y- your return goes down. As long as that ratio is as long as your risk-adjusted returns are going up, that's an OK thing. This is, this is the whole machinery of, of modern finance. Um, I would argue that this is something that we should question. Uh, what, what, what that's really telling us is that the cure is worse than disease when it comes to risk mitigation. Um, I, I argue that we should mitigate risk um, specifically to save us from the losses. And it should, we should do better than had we experienced the losses um, without risk mitigation. It shouldn't cost us to do that Or because it begs the question then, why do we do it? But this is the whole, this is what modern portfolio theory is all about. But it, it, my whole point in my book, for instance, is that it doesn't have to be that way. We just need to think about it differently.
0: Um, so you told me the other day that you're as bearish as you could possibly be. Uh, but also that it doesn't matter what you think, whether the market's going up or down. Uh, can you explain how that could possibly be? Yeah,
1: I mean, Cassandra's make very lousy investors. I, I don't think there's any question about that. They, you know, they have to get their timing. They're, tactically, they have to be perfect and they never are. Uh, so, so, But it kind of goes to my point about how um, uh, when, when risk mitigation is cost-effective, uh, it's strategic and it, we actually want the market to go up more when we are risk mitigated. You know, it, it would, a good analogy would be, if, um, you know, when dark clouds loom, do you go hide inside? If you do, if dark clouds are always looming, you're always hiding inside. Uh, but then an analogy for a, a, a different type of risk mitigation, one that's more explosive and one that's more efficient, would be going outside when dark clouds loom, but having an umbrella that pops open when you need it. So, so I guess the, what this is kind of showing is that risk mitigation, a safe haven to be cost effective, needs to be explosive. It needs to maximize the bang for the buck that you get out of it. And, and what that really means is you need less of it. This is the whole problem with these risk mitigation strategies, diversifiers, as Peter Lynch called them. You could take hedge funds as a group, for example. You could take the strategy of, of, of certainly risk parity, but, or you could take certainly fixed income you, it, it's, it's, it gives you such little return in a crash that you need so much of it in your portfolio in order to be effective. And the fact that you need so much of it in your portfolio creates such a drag the rest of the time. So you, it just makes it just ends up making you poor. The, the cure ends up having been worse than the disease for all these strategies that I'm describing. And it doesn't matter if there's a crash or no crash, which again begs the question, what was the point of it all? But if you need, if for anything, and I'm not just saying this about know, tail hedging, it doesn't have to be puts, it doesn't, it, there's other ways that one could think about this. Um, if, if, if all you need is a very small allocation, and it's, it's, it has enough crash bang for the buck, as I call it then, it, then you actually are able to take on more systematic exposure, and you actually want the market to continue. I, for one, would like this boom to go on forever. I'm saying that as a hedge fund manager, really only expects to make large returns when there's a crash. But the effectiveness, the cost uh, effectiveness of of what uh, we do exists, whether there's a crash or not, historically.
0: So why don't you explain how this works at Universal? I mean, you've put out some incredible numbers, 2020, correct me if I'm wrong, something around 4,000% increase, but overall in the life of your fund. More than a hundred percent, which you say in the book here. So, what exactly are you doing for investors? How does it work? How does this insurance, in effect, that you're selling investors, work? How do you make money? How do they make money? Why should anybody be interested in what you're doing?
1: I don't claim that they should, and I have no interest in. I have no reason to get in that level of detail. You know, people often tell me that it feels like I'm sort of dangling this idea in front of them uh, because I'm not going to talk about um, specific trades that I do, but I would, I would be No, doing... no, forget
0: the specific trades. Yeah. Just the, the idea behind your trades. What are you offering? What, what is this protection that you're offering?
1: Well, I mean, it's the result that is what I like to talk about because it gives a better un- understanding of what it's offering to the end user. And, and that is something that explodes in value in a crash and loses small amounts the rest of the time. So obviously that looks like a Far out of the money put, but I never want to lead someone in that direction because puts to just to say put and to have somebody buy a put, you could even identify a strike, and 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 a, and a duration it, it, is that that's not managed correctly. You're you're doing something someone an extreme disservice. This is something that we've been we've been working on for 25 years, and we still learn every day how best to do this. And it's it's very if you don't get the bang for the buck, and you don't if you're not able to monetize these things the way you need to, you it's it's going to be a waste of your time. It's going to be very costly. So um, like I said, I, it's far more important, I think, for people to understand the purpose of what we try to do in risk mitigation. I don't just mean we. I mean, we all try to do as risk mitigators why we're doing it. Because I think these are the sort of first principle questions that we don't ask. And it's why we find ourselves uh, creating what, you know, what I call the risk mitigation irony. Uh, we mitigate against the risk, but it ends up costing us more than that the risk of that loss would have ever cost us in the first place, but it, this is, like I said, this is modern portfolio theory. So if people can, just, if people just think about risk mitigation in terms of its cost-effectiveness, what you need to do to be cost-effective, I think they're way ahead of the game. I think that levels the playing field for most people far more than if I were to just talk, give a basic cartoon example uh, of what Universal does.
0: So you also once told me that you sell. Peace of mind for investors that's a pretty great product to sell
1: peace of mind but that I mean look that that too sounds like a at what cost At what what cost do we pay for for peace of mind right there's this there's this uh, there's this expression from one of the great German uh, commodities traders is it's better to sleep to, to sleep well than, than to eat well um, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think, you know, if you're just looking for peace of mind, you're going to end up having overpaid for us. Maybe I said that, but it needs to be done cost effectively. That, That ultimately is the key. And the only way to do that is to do it in a way that you need to put so, so little into it. I mean, this is the problem with gold, first and foremost. I mean, I'm an advocate of gold, clearly, because of my beliefs. Um, sort of economic beliefs. But the problem with gold is for it to give you the hedge that it needs to give you. You have to have so much of it in your portfolio that when it's not doing anything for you, it represents a massive drag. And over long periods of time, you really need to have gotten the the tactical call right to make that work. I think most people probably would agree with that because they think of gold as sort of a tactical inflation hedge. But I, I just don't think that tactical risk mitigation is something that any of us will ever be able to do very well. Um, it, uh, it kind of presumes that crystal ball that that risk mitigation presupposes in the first place that we don't none of us have.
0: And, and how about crypto? Is that a store of value? Is that some, akin to gold at this point? Is Bitcoin akin to gold, or is it riskier than that?
1: Crypto, crypto is. Uh, I mean, I think I, I get the feeling that a lot of people who are into cryptocurrencies are, I mean, they're definitely my people. I mean, I consider myself a libertarian and Ron Paul. and But but I, I think the problem is, th- it's the speculative aspect of it that's, that bothers me. I mean, we, we think of it as an antidote to this problem that we're living through right now. We all recognize it. Um, but I think that's... What ends up happening with the speculation behind it is it turn, it's turned itself into a symptom. I mean, you got to remember, you, it's very easy to put your blinders on and look at something like Bitcoin or choose your cryptocurrency and say, look at what this thing is doing. Um, uh, there's something special going on here just by price, mo- uh, price action. And I, I, you can't argue with that. But then you take your blinders off and you got to look around and say, uh, you, you can say the same thing about Rolex watches and baseball cards. And these things are, are, are being pushed by the same fundamental liquidity-driven uh, speculative excess. So I, I, that's not to say that there's nothing, that there isn't something special going on in, in crypto. I, I, I firmly do believe that. Um, but I just think we need to recognize that there are other things driving it. That it isn't just the sort of idiosyncratic story.
0: So when we spoke uh, in February of 2020 uh right before the full impact of the pandemic became uh clear to uh, americans anyway um and and i remember the uh high yield bond then was yielding about five percent which i thought was ridiculous and the market was you know at at another one of its all-time highs and i was very concerned that the market was going to correct and i think you were too um and you know In March, it did correct in a bad, uh, big bad way, and of course, then the Fed stepped in in both March and April, and now we're we're levitating again. And what you're just talking about, asset prices across the Uh, board—you know, the markets pretty much at an all-time high again. I looked yesterday; the high-yield bond is yielding under four percent. To me, this is screaming correction. You said, you know, when we talked a few weeks ago that, you know, you were as nervous as ever or worried as ever about the markets. What do you think, you know, is going on here? And I mean, it's almost October, so that's usually correction time in America, uh, in the markets. What's your take?
1: Well, I agree that we should all be very concerned. But, uh, you know, the more overvalued markets get, the more they tend to get. But overvaluation is the ultimate source of crashes. This notion of a black swan event, I mean, I, I can show empirically, at least historically, um, it doesn't have to always be the case, but they have basically all come from a period of overvaluation. The market just gets more fragile, and is more prone, to pay, it pays more attention to bad news when it's overvalued, right? So I, I, I agree with you, but I just don't think that we should all of a sudden pretend that we can time this. We should be ready for it. We should absolutely be ready for it. The problem is, when you if you adjust your portfolio accordingly um, and with sort of linear instruments, um, if your disposition is wrong, what you could be exposing yourself to is getting squeezed back in as the market goes higher. You trade short, you made yourself short gamma. So this is the problem. Like when someone says, should I get out of the market? There's no way to answer that question to somebody with knowing, without knowing what they're being able to forecast what they would do in in, in certain uh, environments, how sh- how short gamma they would be, conditional on different market moves, if the market were to run away from them. Um, uh, it's similarly when someone is too long and the market goes down, it's uh, they're susceptible to selling it in the hole. It's this this is the but this is the really I think this is the problem that people the question people need to ask themselves is what would I right. do in in the in the, in the uh, scenario where the market moves against me. And we probably aren't even able to answer that question um, honestly. And I'm not just talking about retail investors here. I mean, there are huge, sophisticated pension funds that that, that succumb to this problem of being short gamma um, as a result of uh, some grandiose forecast that they make and position their portfolio accordingly.
0: I mean, do you have any sense of what the catalyst might be for a correction?
1: Uh, I, I don't. I don't even have to think about that.
0: No, you um, you don't. But. I,
1: I don't have to think about that. So the question can always be asked. You know, it's a it's a it's a credit bubble, and if that credit is uh, being generated uh, by the Fed, why why should it ever end? As long as the Fed doesn't ever end it, and I don't think that the central banks will ever pop this bubble. I don't. I, I think that they cannot afford to do that. It will have to come from something else, and I don't think that that's a controversial statement. No, um, but you know, there's. Uh, 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 the problem is there's a limit to to how much debt any entity can take on that's that's why it, it ends of its own sort of weight
0: well and there's i think at least in my judgment a clear mispricing of risk i mean i mean you know back in my younger days uh you know high yield investors demanded 10 11 12% plus warrants you know, and if Mike Milken didn't put them in his pocket, then they might actually get them. N- now you've got uh, you know, under 4% yield. No one talks about warrants. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, how do you reconcile the, the investor capitulation that's gone on and, and their willingness to take incredible risk and not get compensated for it? I mean, maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't, and on a relative basis... You know, it's better than owning treasuries or whatever that yield under 1%. W- w- I get that whole argument, but but I just don't understand why once upon a time they demanded 800 basis points, more yield, plus warrants, and now, yeah, no big deal. We'll- or
1: you can, you can just lever it up. I mean, leverage is the, sort of the panacea for a, a, a strategy that doesn't make enough money for you. It's, it is the also sort of the, the excuse that... Um, Risk parity, for example, uses. If, if risk parity, for instance, I'm not just picking on risk parity. Diversifying strategies cost you wealth. But the presumption then is that you will just lever them up and it won't cost you wealth. Of course, that's preposterous to think that it should blow your mind that you need to use leverage, financial engineering leverage, in order for a risk mitigation strategy to be effective. But I think that is sort of a presumption that we can just do more of it. Do more of it. Um, I, you know, it's it just I, there's a good uh, there's a Margaret, Margaret Thatcher quote that, that, that says that the, the problem with socialism is that eventually you run out of other people's money. But I think that when it comes to credit, these credit booms, credit bubbles, the problem with credit bubbles is eventually you're no longer able to borrow others, pe- other people's money. Uh, y- there's a limit to that, and I think we need to remember that this is not just an infinite source. It's not just this is not necessarily helicopter money. It's it's it, it's a debt, and fundamental to all this is thinking is equating debt with wealth um fundamental to the belief in this going on forever
0: you have to pay debt back last time i it's a liability
1: yes. it's not an asset
0: it's not an asset okay so you wrote this uh book safe haven w- why'd you do this
1: uh you know it was, i almost didn't it was very hard um, to get done and uh, it was introspection for me i mean the the general idea is why I approach risk mitigation the way I do. And I think how it's a framework, for How I think people should think about it. Um, uh, as, as I said before, I think there's, there, there, I, there's just, there's so much superficial narrative in what risk mitigation or safe haven investing is so much superficial narrative. People don't ask what they're trying to accomplish in doing it. And if they did that, I think that we wouldn't have these Diversifying 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 strategies out there nearly as popular as we do, um, because there wouldn't be a reason to do that. The, the logic would dictate that people would have to stop doing
0: that. You know, but we've talked about this before. I mean, retail investors, regular investors, non-institutional investors can't really get access to your risk mitigation strategies, and you know, being in cash, as you said, is not a great strategy. You know, I have found, having lived through now three or four crashes, that if you just sort of stick with it, the market does seem to rebound and everything sort of works out despite the pain that you're experiencing during the market disruption. So, you know, what, what's the common man to do in this situation?
1: I mean, the, the, the common man is, 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 they're kind of screwed. They're, they're trapped in this, this dilemma that I described. This is the trap that it, that has been set uh, by central banks for our whole life. Uh, so let's Pretty say close. it started in the '80s, big time. Um, so, I, listen, it's not. It, it's everything can't be about a, a, a cookbook on, on on what your next trade should be. But I, I do. It, it first of all, we got to get our first principles right. We got to understand why we're doing what we're doing. We got to understand um, what to expect. Out of our safe haven, out of our risk mitigation strategy is it are we making a, a a forecast is it is it just is it a punt on its own, or do we think we're actually using it strategically to mitigate our risk, and if so, what should we expect of it? Is this something that we should always have on, or do we think that we know something special about the world right now that we're going to get this right and I think most most people think of it um, you know it looks at diversification is the way to go for most people, so I think most people. Think about safe havens and risk mitigation as just a cost that you bear. Uh, but but if you look historically at it, what you find is that that cost you can go through all the cycles that you can find, and that cost is something that you can, you would never have made up. It's 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 so then, you know, why did you do it? And this is more this is particularly uh, uh, relevant today with interest rates where they are because we of course it's 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 fixed income that is the ultimate.
0: Well, it's relevant strategy. with interest rates where they are and where the markets are where they are and where other assets are where they are. I mean, it just is screaming out for correction, if you ask me. Of course, I've been like a broken clock right twice a day for the last five years. Uh, I, mean, I
1: don't disagree with what you're saying, but I still think we all need to take this sort of benevolent universe premise. that what that what It doesn't mean that everything will turn out okay. It means that we can adapt and we should be working to – to, to To make those changes in order to make our way through it. And that doesn't necessarily just mean we have to hide in the basement, right?
0: So in the three or four minutes we have left here, so if we can't, by and large, get access to your risk mitigation strategies, we can get access to your goat cheese. And mm-hmm. you have an incredible farm in Michigan and you make incredible goat cheese. But you have a philosophy of farming that I think uh, is pretty fascinating too. Could you share that with us?
1: Well, I mean, we do
0: regenerative
1: farming at uh, at Idle Farms, and that's based on a uh, very managed way moving uh, these ruminant goats around pasture. Um, it's basically mimicking nature the way ruminants used to roam around roam around uh, the landscape. And when you do that, you get this sort of Interesting symbiotic relationship between the ruminants and and, and and the pasture and the soil and what um, what ends up happening is you your the, the productivity of the soil and the uh, 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 the health of the soil explodes. So this is something that I'll, that is a movement that's going on right now. But I'm um, it, the connection that I make is you know when you do this the the whole is is very much greater than the sum of the parts. And I think the modern agriculture really that's the one thing they really miss because what is what are what is industrial modern industrial farming done it's taken the ruminants and put them inside and it's planted monoculture chemical monoculture crops on that land and then moves it to feed them uh, inside and of course when you do that it's an ecological disaster and it's very unhealthy and our topsoil is being depleted but that's just looking at the parts it's looking in a reductionist way which is a perfect analogy to what modern finance has done um, it's you 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 break down the portfolio in a very reductionist way by uh, uh, optimizing uh s- some meaningless uh, mean variance uh, sharp ratio in your portfolio that that just ends up making everybody poor without looking at the whole when you're looking at um what different types of uh, you know as i said before explosive types of payouts can can do for the whole uh so it's uh yeah it's something that, that, that uh, has been very important to me for a long time
0: and why do you decide to do this is as a sidelight like to your... Well,
1: it's a, it's a, it was a wonderful antidote to uh, to uh, in trading and investing. But, you know, we know, I, I we of course, goats are these wonderful herding animals, and it sort of occurred to me too late that as I'm out there with them that all I've really done is move from one herding beast and in investing in the markets to another herding beast. There's, there are great similarities. Um, but it's, Those it's, uh, can be
0: nicer, know, though, than... People. They tend to be. Yeah. They tend to be.
1: But, you know, everybody, everybody needs something sort of tangible, I think, in, in their
0: life like that. And is it a, a viable business for you? It is.
1: You know, the other great byproduct of this uh, sort of symbiotic relationship between ruminant and and pasture and soil is that it makes particularly good uh, milk for, for cheese. And it's interesting, even in the Loire Valley, they they stop using this this uh, 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 pasture-based model. And the, um, our cheese is far better than goat cheese from the Water Valley. Um, there's no bias in
0: that. No, no say, say so yourself. But you're, and your other location is Miami. Why there?
1: Uh, well, we moved uh, uh, the firm there from uh, from California in 2014. Listen, it's, uh, we all know what's going on from Wall Street to, to, to South Florida. I, I think it's a very positive thing. It keeps um, both ends of that transaction more disciplined. People vote with their feet. It's a very business-friendly uh, environment. And better time zones and things like that, too.
0: Well, thank you very much. Uh, Mark is an incredible investor and a great maker of goat cheese. So if you can ever get him to let you into the, to his risk mitigation strategy, you will be better off for it. I haven't convinced him yet. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you.